Let us ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word today. Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving that you have called us into your presence. We rejoice in your grace and mercy for the forgiveness of our sins for Jesus' sake. We ask now that your holy word, sharp as a two-edged sword, cuts us up, rearranges us, and conforms us to your Son, Jesus. May the words of the mouth, my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We are continuing our study in Colossians, and we are going to be reading Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 and reading through verse 23. Let us hear God's word. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the, to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out all the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humil humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglected of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, I know this seems like a long passage, but I want to share with you, I'm not going to break it down by every little verse today, but there's one theme and one message that is being proclaimed to us today. 
As we think about this, remember, as we study the book of Colossians, all the verses, all the chapters, they are not simply things that stand alone, but they are part of a larger message, a larger theme that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And as he is writing to them, he is concerned for that church. He wants to teach them. He wants them to know what is important and what is going on. So part of that theme, we want to remember several things. One, we've already learned in our study of Colossians that we were alienated from God. Our minds and our emotions are alienated from God when we are outside of Christ Jesus. When we are in bondage, we are cut off from God. We've also learned that because of the forgiveness of God, that as we become Christians, we need to be growing and maturing. You know, if you take your children to the doctor, what do they do? They weigh them, they measure them, they do all kinds of things. And if they find that growth appears to be stunted compared to the norm, they begin to ask questions. What kind of nourishment are they getting? What are, what are they doing? What's happening in the home? And if the basic things are taken care of, they start saying something else is going on. There's a bigger challenge going on. But we need to recognize that in the Christian faith, in the very same way, we should be growing and maturing in God. And being a Christian is coming to maturity, which is Christ in your life. Do you get up? The things you do, your priorities, the way you handle your relationships, are you doing those in Christ? Chapter 1 also reminded us that there is this mystery going on. And this is important because this helps us deal with the passage today. What is this great mystery? It's Christ in you, the Gentile. Right Before, the Gentiles did not have access to God's sanctuary. They were cut off. There were all these degrees of separation. Only one person could go into the most holy place, the high priest, once a year. And then there was a few more that could go into the Holy of Holies. And then there were some that, that could, or the most holy place, there were some more that could go into the courtyard, right? And, but those were all Levites and priests. And then there were more that could come to the doorway of the temple, the outer courtyards. And then... Even more could come to Israel and learn of God. But everybody, there were these degrees of separation. It was all because of our sin. But we must guard ourselves from this idea to say, well, we're God's people. Nobody else can come in here. One of my favorite uh, Christian songs from ages past has a line in it that says, the doors are locked at the church. Is it from within or from without? Are people not coming in the door? Or are we locking the door so nobody can get in because we're the holy special people of God? We don't want to fall into that trap because there is one body, one group of believers. We don't get to say, oh, well, you're not, you're not in our special group, so we're not letting you in. We also learned that the word of God comforts and knits us together and assures us in our understanding. I'm glad that you come to church, and I feel privileged as your pastor to deliver the word to you. But are you reading the word through the week? Are you preparing for worship? We suggest to you that you read through the lectionary readings. You'll know what the passage is that I'm preaching on. Are you reading those um, from the information that's provided for you each week? 
Or are you just coming in here and saying, Pastor, I want you to do all the work and come in here and lay it all out for me. Now, that's part of what I'm here for. But how much more growth do you get if you read and prepare, if you're praying? And I ask, pray for me so that I can deliver the word faithfully to you. We need to read, hear, and sing the word of God, not just here in our church, but in our homes and with our families. We are brought together in Christ, and the only unity, and you know, the, the whole culture, we need unity. We've got to fix all these problems. There's only unity found in Christ Jesus. Last week, kind of bringing us up to our passage, we learned that we have tendencies to desire to return to bondage because we have fond memories, things we liked in our time of bondage. We, like Israel, were willing to go back to a life of bondage and slavery for simple pleasures. You know, when I think about this all the time, I can't imagine that those melons and onions and leeks were so good that they were willing to trade all that, that food, right, in order to be a slave again. It seems absurd when we say it, and yet that's what many of us, and truthfully all of us at one time or another have done. We've returned back to our sin. As Christians, we need to insulate ourselves from being led back to slavery to sin. How do we do that? We read, we pray, we sing God's word. We hear it, we worship together, we get with our fellow Christians, and what do we do? We read, we sing, we pray God's word so that we grow and mature. And in all of that, what are we doing? We're singing, cling to Christ, cling to his words, cling to his truth. So in this passage today, we need to take away a few things. One is that Jesus, Christ Jesus, is Lord. You know, the most common way that we weaken ourselves is by emptying the Bible of its true content. And what is the true content of the Bible? It's Jesus. Most of the time, we don't simply remove the Bible from our lives because we know as Christians that would be absurd. Right? If we call ourselves a Christian but have no Bible in our house... That seems a little odd. And if you've been in the church a long time, you probably don't have just one Bible. You might have five, six, seven. If you have kids, maybe you have 10 or 12. Lots of Bibles everywhere. But having the Bible there doesn't mean that we're engaging with it. And what we typically do, we don't just take all our Bibles one day and carry them out. We don't do that. That'd be shocking. Instead... What we do instead is it's, it's slowly, it's in stages. We start skipping over parts of the Bible that we don't like. Later on, we begin to change and say, well, it doesn't really mean that. And then later, we remove that part completely. You'll find one of the great things about the lectionary, and it only does about 23% of the Bible every three years, but as we as a congregation get together and we're reading that lectionary, we don't skip parts. We're going to let it hear, we're going to hear God's word, right? We didn't pick it per se, right? We chose which lectionary readings, right? There's a little book tells you. But we're going to hear it, and whether, whether we think it's the appropriate thing of the week or not, if it, let's say there's a bunch of sin going on, we say, man, that's appropriate. Man, I'm glad that's the verse. How does that happen by God's providence? 
Sometimes, though, when I look at those lectionary readings and after having spent the last week or two with different people in church, I go, whew, this is going to be something. <laughs> right? I'm serious. I think about that. Or as I prepare a sermon, I can think of last week, there were some things in the sermon like, I just take the text as it is, and I'm like, wow. Man, it's getting me here, and I know it's going to get a bunch of them too. But we can't, we can't walk away from the Bible we can't remove parts. We can't ignore the fact that the Bible is about Jesus and that our only hope in life is in Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure that all the Bible is about Jesus, in Luke 24, 27, Jesus himself says, when he's talking to the disciples after his resurrection, that all the Old Testament was about himself. And we know the New Testament was about Christ. We must watch out and not believe anyone who's telling us otherwise, who says, well, that part of the Bible, it doesn't apply anymore. Well, there, there are some things in the ceremonial law, in the liturgical law, because Jesus has come and fulfilled that. We don't have to do that anymore, and we're going to talk some of that today. But largely, the bigger thing is, that's not usually the things they're worried about, right? They're talking about behaviors. They're talking about sins. They're talking about what we do in our everyday life. Nobody's talking about, well, you know, the arguments don't come up. Well, we're not going out there and, and killing a bunch of sheep and pouring the blood out, right? Because that's not in question in our lives. No, it has to do with, you know, our sexuality. It's having to do with um, just measures. Are we taking bribes? Are we handling our business? Are we keeping our word? It's always about what we're doing now, not about the things that we know are clearly passed away. Now, here in, in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 4, it says, Now I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Just a couple of things. One, guess what? There are people trying to deceive you. And how are they going to do it? They're going to use persuasive words. They're going to come to you. They're going to try to convince you of things. So just know that. So because of that, he's, he's going to answer those questions what are we being what are we uh um, guarding against being deceiving of he's going to bring that up and he's going to say it's going to be persuasive and why is it persuasive because our sinful hearts want to find excuses not to obey god and he points this out this is really good this reminds us of what we're doing here for though i am absent in the flesh that is to say he's worshiping the lord in a church in ephesus perhaps or somewhere else when he's writing this letter and he says, yet I am with you in spirit. And then he says, I see your good order and steadfastness in the faith. He's talking about that when you get together, when I'm worshiping over here and you're worshiping over there, I've heard from Epaphras that you guys are doing that in good order. Right? That is to say, there's a liturgy, there's a plan, you're doing it according to the way God's word says, and he commends them on that. That's a good reminder for us. And in that, because we're worshiping in good order, it brings steadfastness to our faith in Christ. How do we know this? It's like we hear every week. God calls us. He calls us to repentance. We repent. He teaches us. He conforms us to Christ. And he brings us to his, to his table of peace and sends us out. And we're reminded that that's the pattern that God has for us. That's what brings steadfastness in your life. He goes on and says this in terms of that, you know, watching not to be deceived. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord... 
So you're a Christian. You've received Christ Jesus as Lord. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. What are we to do? We're to walk in him. And we're to be, and with that, what does that mean? Living in grace with gratitude. We need to remember that when we are walking with Christ, that we should remember all the sins he has forgiven and how he chose us, even though we didn't deserve it. He gave us his grace. And therefore, we should be full of gratitude, and that should have impact towards God our Father and to other people in our lives. Second, he says, you need to be rooted. What does that mean? That means believing and trusting in Christ. That means <clears throat> that you are tied in, believing and trusting. That no matter if you hear bad news in your life today, or in this past week, or whether you heard good news, all of it is because of God's providence and working in your life. Are you believing and trusting in Jesus? In the good times, in the hard times, are you believing and trusting in Jesus as the only hope in forgiveness of your sins and being made whole and healed? Trust in Jesus. Third, he says you need to be built up. That means that you have to grow. You have to mature. You've got to have things that move and build in you. How do we do that? Cling to Christ. Read, study, sing. His word, alone and with others. We must be taught. We must be taught, and we must live out God's word as we're taught. Part of that is you're in church here this morning. But what else are you doing in the week to be taught? Do you have devotional helps? Are you listening to podcasts? How about this one? Because those are, those are fairly easy. How about, are you calling your brother or sister and discussing God's word with them so that you can grow and be built up? So that they can grow and be built up. And with all of these things, we are taught that we must continually be amazed by God's, by God's kindness and grace towards us and abound in thanksgiving towards God that flows out. When we are full of thanksgiving towards God, it flows out to other people in all situations in our lives. It's usually when we're grumbling and complaining about what God is doing in our life that we are harsh and difficult with other people. Don't do that. Live in grace and gratitude for God's grace, and in that will flow out God's love and kindness to others. We have received Christ Jesus the Lord. He is our King, and we receive Him with joy. So now he says this. This is what we're going to. We need to keep our eyes open because Satan beguiles us. Now that's an old word. We're going to talk about that shortly. <clears throat> it says this in verse 8 Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. <coughs> Excuse me. Satan wants to complicate your faith in God. He wants to challenge you and make it hard to accept and believe God's forgiveness and grace for you. The serpent complicates things. 
God's enemies do not want you to believe in Jesus and to be clinging to him. They want you to empty Jesus from the scriptures and in so doing, empty Jesus from your life. The word cheat here in this passage in older translations was translated as beguile. Now this word beguile is a little more complex than the word that we think of cheat. What it means is to delude, to deceive, to impose by artifice or craft. What that means is, is that they are taking strategic positions to try to draw you away, to try to empty Jesus from your life, to delude you, to deceive you. But they're doing it with a purpose in mind. It actually says that 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 delusion comes by a skill acquired by science or practice. There are those who rage so hard against God that they work on developing their skills to tear down the faith, to tear you down, to cause you to look to other things instead of looking to Jesus. Here's the tricky part of beguile. Listen to this now. To evade detection of anything disagreeable by amusement or other means to pass pleasingly. So, you, you have something that's really terrible, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you by making it, by amusing you, to make it fun, to, to, to cause you to, oh, make it more palatable. Right? How many parents have ever had a child that wouldn't take their medicine? Right? A bunch of us. Right? Maybe even yourself, there's stuff so bitter, so hard to deal with. What'd you do? You tried to find something to put it in or to cover it up so that you could get it down. That's what Satan and others, and we're going to talk about this, even some in the church... That is, people that are inside churches, people that say they're Christians. They're doing, they're bringing you bad ideas, lies from the pit of hell, and what they're saying is, we're going to make it so it's just an amusement. We're going to ease it. We're going to make it easy for you. We're going to distract you from thinking it's so terrible. Maybe by entertaining your lusts, quick gratification, all these kinds of things. So what are we guarding from? What is he specifically saying we are being guarded against? He says the traditions of men's of men. That is the traditions that are added on to God to the gospel. These ideas, these traditions, they take us away from Christ. These ideas are set among us sometimes by people in the church. We can sometimes get so focused on Okay, we have to feed the hungry that all we ever do is focus on feeding the hungry. Now, it's important to feed those who need help. But if we make our labors, our work, our mercy work before Christ, that's a problem. So many times there are people who are skillfully distracting Christians in churches that take us away from Christ. These ideas cause us to veer off from all of Scripture being about Jesus and His redemption for us. And man, they are slick. They speak in Christian religious language that seems normal, all the while they are leading us away from Christ. 
You know, Jesus, he spoke to the Pharisees and religious leaders in Israel. And he said this to them. He called them whitewashed tombs, something that is clean and looks good on the inside, on the outside, but is filled with death on the inside. Tombs, you know, we can go to, especially in, in South Louisiana, because of all the floods and hurricanes, they don't just bury people in the ground. They can't because the floods come and then, you know, you have trouble. So they build these elaborate mausoleums. And they're beautiful. A lot of times they're made with white marble. And they're all ornately designed. But what are they filled with? Death. We need to understand that just because something looks good doesn't mean that it is right and righteous. So what are these things he brings up? He talks about philosophy. The empty traditions of men, but he says philosophy. Of course, sometimes people say it's Greek philosophy. Sometimes say it's modern philosophy. Or maybe even some philosophy mixed with Judaism. And you see that as Jesus deals with the different groups. At the very end of his life, they're trying to tempt Jesus and say they bring these different people. All of them with different hang-ups. Right? You've got the Pharisees who have all these extra rules, this oral tradition they've created. They come and they try to trick Jesus, and Jesus cuts to the chase. He's direct, cuts right through it. Then they, they, they come and they bring some of the Sadducees, and they come. They don't even believe the Bible. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe they're going to face judgment. But what are they doing? They're continuing the tradition. They're actually running the temple. But they don't even believe God at all. They're just doing it for tradition. For what purpose? For their own gain and power. And we can certainly say that there are empty philosophies today that, are, that rage against Christ. What else does he say about empty deceit? Vaporous delusion. That is, that man can solve their own problems. This is a big thing. Everybody say, oh, you got a problem? You can do it yourself. You can pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. You can solve all your own problems. Now, certainly, if you're obedient to what God's Word says and how to live, that takes away some of the problems and some of the difficulties. But until you come to Christ, you confess your sins, and then you repent. I mean, turn away and don't go back. Right? Until you're in Christ, you can't solve your problems. Everything you do are just band-aids, and you're going to return right back to it. You need to go to God and say, God, give me a new heart. I can't do it. These traditions of men, it's adding all kinds of things to, to what it means to be saved and what it means to live as a Christian. There's a quote by a theologian that says this, Humans are forever shaken, or excuse me, humans are forever taken in by appearances. How does it look? And by high-sounding drivel. Philosophy can captivate and beguile them to thinking that it has truth. We're taken in by the way it looks, the way it sounds, and it's really nothing. This looks like finding ourselves. Trust your own heart. We want to be in control of our own lives. All of this is drifting from Jesus. It's like saying, I'm going to to do this. I'm going to take my refrigerator 
and move it away from the plug, and I'm going to put it over here so that people have better access to it. And I put all my food in it. It's going to look, man, it's a brand new refrigerator. It looks beautiful on the outside. Has all the potential in the world. But that food that's in it, it's going to be rotten. It's going to go bad. It will make you sick and maybe even kill you because it's unplugged from the power. When we unplug ourselves from Christ, we too are being taken in. We can't function. And of course, he says, you've got to be careful about the basic principles. He's warning them about the basic principles. These basic principles, in the context of what he's saying here, is directed right to the Judaizers. Those who were saying, yep, you need to be a Christian, but we want you to be circumcised. We want you to go back and do all the things of the Old Covenant, all the types and shadows. You've got to do all that. Instead of saying, no, Christ alone delivers us from our sin, brings us and gives us sanctuary access. Christ is not in all these things. Jesus is simple. Believe and trust and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because verse 9 tells us, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Contrary to what many have said Jesus is fully God. He is God revealed. And Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. Christians, you are followers of Christ. We're not followers of doctrinal fads in the church or fads of the culture to resolve our guilt and regret for our sin. Only Christ forgives, reconciles, and restores men to the Father. Jesus is the only one that can heal us and make us whole. Jesus brings us from death to life. And of course, he, say, he reminds them of this. He says, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through the faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now to be a Christian, God circumcises the heart. He takes out the stony heart, the dead heart, and puts in a beating, fleshing heart. Now that is something that God does to change us. And he says, this is represented in baptism. God does a work in baptism. The Spirit moves. Baptism is being incorporated into God's people and the beneficiary of the covenant promises. God chose us. God gives us a new heart. God cuts away our sinful nature. We don't do any of it. We don't qualify to be chosen. We don't deserve it, but God changes us and makes us His people. And here we see in this passage that God uses baptism as a way to bring people into His covenant. God buries us, Romans 6, and He buries us with Jesus. And we are raised in faith that He bestows upon us. He marks us out as His covenant people. The meaning of baptism will be lived out for the rest of your lives. The implications of baptism and faith is lived out daily in our lives.
And why, why does this happen? Because he has changed us. And you know what God does? He reminds us every week when we come into this place that he has changed us, that we are God's people, that he has forgiven us. Because then after all these things, he comes and he brings us to his table of peace because Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father. You and I were dead before God gave us a new heart. You know, we often worry if God has really forgiven our sin. We know that God sees everything we do. Isn't that right, children? God sees everything that we do. That makes us nervous. Even worse, God knows our motives. He knows why we're doing it. And we know that God is right to judge every one of us in this room today as wicked sinners. And what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment for our wickedness. You see, we were judged by the law. We were found guilty, every one of us. What does Jesus do with these accusations against us? Because they're true. Right now, people get indicted all the time. Politics is a mess. Everybody's making accusations. We're going to bring you up on charge. We're going to do all these different things. Half the time, we don't know if it's true or made up. But the accusations that we have broken God's law that we have sinned against God, those are true accusations. What did Jesus do? Jesus took those true accusations, He took them to the cross, and He nailed those accusations to the cross. Verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive with him and have forgiven you all your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that's the law that was against us which was contrary to us it, it was tearing us down and he has taken it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross and in doing so he disarmed principalities and powers all those that were coming against the people of God and he made a spectacle of them triumphing over them in it Jesus, when he came to earth, has forgiven us and wiped out all the rightful charges against us. He has nailed him, them to the cross. Jesus has disarmed the accuser. What can the accuser do? What can Satan do? Jesus says, that's covered. I nailed it to the cross. Jesus has disarmed the accuser. He has defeated all the principalities and powers. Jesus, has, at his resurrection, defeated and made a public spectacle of the high priest and all who conspired against him. These men continue to grasp for power to maintain the old ways. So think about this, right? They're so, listen, you know, they knew who Jesus was. They weren't deceived. And they hated him for it. How do we know this? Because what did they do? They did everything they could to crucify him, to nail him to the cross, Right? And they stood there and they watched. We're going to watch this guy die. We're going to watch this guy die. And they cursed him. And they did all these things. And when he dies, you know, if, if they didn't know who he was before, when he dies, there's an earthquake. It gets dark. All these things happen. The, the, the one thing that gave them pride was the temple. And that veil that, that blocked off access to God was torn in half. 
Not from the bottom up, like if a man was doing it. It was from the top down. Jesus embarrassed them. He made a public spectacle. And after all that, they still didn't. They're like, man, we're going to be against it. What we're going to do, we need to put guards. We've got to put our guards. We're going to put Roman guards. And we're going to seal that tomb up. We're going to keep God in the tomb. What happens on Easter Sunday? Can they keep him in the tomb? No. And how outrageous. After all this, after Jesus comes forth from the tomb and is seen by more than 500 witnesses, all they're doing at every turn, what do they do with the witnesses who saw the tomb and the stone rolled back? They paid him off and said, don't worry, if you get in trouble with other officials, we'll cover for you. We'll make it right. They were doing all they could, and at every turn, the work of Christ and the lives of his disciples, his people, pro proved out that he was Jesus, the Son of God. He embarrassed them. So all of this, they, in, in this, they want to cling to what it means to be a Jew to be separate from everyone else, to not follow God's direction, to share the gospel truth, the forgiveness of sins, so that you can have access to the Father. They're holding on to it. They want all the ceremonies to stay the same. In verse 16, this is where he talks about, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink, or about the festival or the new moon, which are the shadow of the things to, cry, uh, to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one cheat you. There's that word again, beguile. Don't let anyone defraud you or delude you or deceive you by a craft, by how they're doing it. Don't let them cheat you of your reward. You see, all these things that we do on top of scriptures, now, I want to say something here. We have a liturgy, and we do certain things a certain way. That's different than saying we're going to go back this is important because what is he talking about? He's trying to deal with these Judaizers that are saying, go back to the Old Covenant. Do all those things. If we do things to remind us, like putting up the colors of the banners, color of my tie, these things that remind us that it's the church season and we should be growing and maturing, green, growing and maturing in Christ, right? Those are fine. Those are things that we're doing to remind us. But that's not the same as what he's talking about here where he is saying, don't go back to the old things of the Old Testament and do all those things because Christ fulfilled all that. You see, what was their, their problem? These are just, it's a false humility. It's a worship of the angels, the, 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 the teachers in the Old Covenant. It's about pride. How do we solve this? We hold fast to the head from whom all the body is nursed and knit together. We can drop down and look at verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, that's the ceremonial law. Why as though living in the world do you subject, subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerns things which will perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. You know, the, the rabbis didn't want to just keep it strictly to what God's law said. They said, okay, we have Moses' law, we have what God said we ought to do, and we're going to explain what it means, and we're going to add to everything. So the oral law was humongous. 
adding all these extra things saying about what makes you righteous. What is following God? Don't fall into those traps. And of course, he points out that all this is about, it's a self-imposed religion, a false humility. And this is really big. You do all these things in your own strength, not trusting, believing, and clinging to Christ. Right? All those things that you do, all those extra things in your own strength, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That is, they're of no value of delivering you from your sin. <coughs> Even in the midst of the church, people will seek to add formulas, rules, exact methods to what they deem and, as right. And they want to work and convince others that these ways are the only ways. And they do look good on the outside, but these additions, despite how good they look, are a false humility. And all these things, even if they seem to cause the sinful nature to not be working, are truly not going to deliver you. You have to cling to Christ. We must hold fast to Christ. We must hold fast to the head, our head, Jesus. And what happens when we hold to Him? The body of Christ is nourished and knit together. People of God, our primary allegiance is to Jesus. We must hold fast to Jesus. We cannot be unplugged or disconnected from Jesus or we will die. Satan plots against God's people. He makes us think that bondage is good and he distracts us with pleasant, believable amusements. Satan and those with him are trying to offer us poison delicacies to eat. If Satan offered us meals that look like poison, we wouldn't eat it. He will make it look good. Satan will try to use other people around you, in your family, your church, your work, or your social groups to entice you. How do we combat this as an individual and together as God's people? We hold fast to Christ and we will be nourished and knit together. Don't desire the melons and onions, but cling to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would keep us from cluttering our minds with false hopes, with trying to compel you or to plead you to go our way instead of your ordained way. Be merciful and keep us from raising up false hopes to delude ourselves and others. Grant that our minds be fixed where our true joys are to be found, even in Jesus Christ. Grant that our hope be grounded upon Him and upon your word so that we may see all things clearly and so that we may live holding fast to our head, Christ Jesus who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.